Welcome to Crosslink Community Church Podcast, where we prize Jesus, make disciples, and love people well. We are so glad you're here, and wherever you're listening from, we believe you will be more acquainted with the heartbeat of God through today's message. Mike is on. It's on now, buddy. All right. The children are dismissed to go to Sunday school or wherever it is that they go right now. If you want to hang out and listen to Uncle Johnny, you're welcome to do that. I, uh, I just want you to know right off the rip that uh, sitting in this service right here, you know, sometimes I, I get up here and the first thing I do is I pray and, you know, and I ask, uh, I ask the Lord to be present and for the Holy Spirit to be, you know, come in power. I don't have to do that here. I don't have to do that here because I was just filled with the Holy Spirit to overflowing during your worship time. And, and I want to tell you something about being available to God. I had, a, I had a gentleman ask me, he was from Promise Keepers, and he asked me, I had been walking with the Lord for about four or five years, and he says, Johnny, he goes, you know what your greatest ability is? And I said, well, you know, I'm a good bricklayer. You know, I was a union bricklayer when I was on the street, and, and you know, I worked on skyscrapers, and I did some good work. And he goes, nah, that's not it. And I said, well, I'm a good communicator. I said, I'm in Toastmasters. You know, that's a communication and leadership program. And, 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 and I've learned to be a fairly good communicator. He goes, no, no, that's not it. I said, all right, I give up, Ted. What is it? What's my greatest ability? He said, your greatest ability is your availability. He says, when you make yourself available to God, he will do miraculous things with you. He takes ordinary guys just like me and you and does extraordinary things with them. And, and so I, I love that song, and, and all the songs uh, had meaning to me. I want to look at my watch because I promised I wouldn't speak for two hours. Uh, so so let, me just let me just tell you a little bit about where I came from and, and where I'm at now. I, I'm from the uh, Steel Valley in Northeast Ohio, the Youngstown Warren area. I was born in 1957. That makes me 65 years old. I was born August 13th, 1957. My family lived in a, um, a metropolitan housing project up there. We, uh, my mama says, don't you ever tell people we were poor. She says, you just tell them we were lower middle class. And I said, okay, mama. So we, were, we didn't have a lot of money. Uh, my pop, um, my, my dad, he fell 102 feet. He was an industrial iron worker, and he fell 102 feet from a, a tower that he was working on. And... Uh, and broke every bone in his body but his neck and his left arm five years before I was born. So uh, he was in the hospital for, for several years. Uh, he went through major operations. He was in a body cast for almost two years. He lost one of his legs. He had, you know, just went, really went through it. And uh, he weighed 83 pounds when he was released from the hospital. And uh, the, all the old ladies in the neighborhood uh, nursed him back to help with their home cooking and stuff. So, so he got he got back on it. He got I was gonna I was gonna say back on his feet, but if he was here, he'd say I got back on my foot. Uh, and uh, and so he, he you know he went back to work. He never got to go back to work as an iron worker, but he did go back to work as a uh, as a teamster doing heavy highway construction. And uh, thanks for this water, man. He, so he goes back to work, and unbelievably, miraculously, my mama gets pregnant. And I, and I look just like my dad, so, you know, there's no hanky-panky going on. Uh, you know, no milkman, mailman, whatever. Uh, so 
my mom gets pregnant and she goes to her mom and she says, we, we're an Irish-American family. And she goes to her mom and she says, Ma, she says, you ain't going to believe this. She says, but I'm pregnant. And my granny, bless her heart, she says, Jesus, Mary, and Joseph, daddy, the lad broke every bone in his body but that one. <laughs> and, so, and so my mama, my mama was a very, very, very devout lady. She loved the Lord and she laid hands on her belly the entire time she was pregnant. She would pray uh, every day over me and she would dedicate me to God, you know, just like some of the women in the Bible dedicated their sons to God. And, uh, and it's a good thing mama did that uh, because I took my mama to hell and back many times throughout the course of my life before I, uh, before I, I surrendered. And um, I grew up in an area that was uh, uh, heavily involved with organized crime. And those were my role models. That, you know, there, was, there were always good role models in my life. But I chose, I chose the bad guys. I chose the gangsters as my role models. You know, in Deuteronomy 30, 15, it says, This day I have set before you life and blessings, death and curses. You choose. You choose which one you want. The Lord gives us a choice of which one we're going to want. And I chose the death and the curses. And uh, so I, I, was, I was enamored by their, by their clothing. I was enamored by their jewelry, their cars, uh, their swag, uh, the, the beautiful girls that they had with them. You know, all that stuff, all that glitz and glamour caught my attention. But I didn't see what was on the other side of that gangster lifestyle. But I, but I soon would. I soon would find out. Uh, you know, they say, be careful what you wish for. You just might get it. So, uh, so I wanted to be a gangster. When I was in second grade, the teacher went around the room and she says, Billy, what do you want to be when you grow up? And Billy said, I want to be a policeman like my dad. And she says, oh, good, Billy. And she says, Sally, what do you want to be? And Sally says, I want to be a nurse like my mommy. And she says, oh, good, Sally. She says, Johnny, what do you want to be when you grow up? I said, I want to be a gangster. And she you know, her chin hit the floor, and she goes, did your mama know about this? And I was like, I don't know, you know. So, so that, was, that was where my head was at. Now, I want to tell you something that I learned throughout the years of my walk with the Lord and my years in recovery. All sin, all sin is addictive, and all addiction is progressive. So let me tell you a little bit about that progression in my life. I started off as a young kid wanting to be a gangster, we, we formed little uh, groups of guys. We called them crews back then. They, they call them gangs now. And uh, a, lot, a lot of our, our involvement was based on, based on our ethnicity. You know, the Irish kids hung out together. The Italian kids hung out together, so on and so forth. You know, the, the African-American kids, the Hispanic kids. And so we all had little crews, and we were doing little petty criminal things. Okay, that progresses. That petty criminal stuff progresses from uh, shoplifting to uh, burglary to robbery to armed robbery and so on and so forth. Uh, the fighting in the, in the street uh, progressed to, uh, you know, we started off fighting with our hands and fists. Then the next thing you know, we're fighting with weapons. Then the next thing you know, we're hurting people with weapons and, uh, and going to jail for it. Um, the drugs and alcohol, the progression that that took in my life, I started off smoking pot and drinking beer like, like most people do, you know, on the weekends or when, before you go to a dance. And, and soon after that, you know, not too many years after that, I, was, I progressed to pills and I progressed to, 
to uh, narcotics, and the next thing you know, I'm shooting dope into my veins with a needle. So, so that's how that progressed. And I'm drinking alcohol every day. So I'm a daily user, and uh, and we know where that leads. We know where that leads us. Uh, you have to get money to buy those things. And uh, in in my mind, in my criminal and addictive thinking, uh, the only the only time crime was bad, the only time crime was not not good, was when you got caught. That was that was my mentality. And I had a had a criminal defense attorney tell my mama when I was about 13. He says, Dorothy, he says, I'm afraid Johnny is showing character traits of a career criminal. And, and mama was like, oh, you, no, you got to be mistaken. Not, not my Johnny. And, uh, but sure enough, he, he was right. Because in 1985, after, be, after being to prison uh, numerous times, in 1985, I was sentenced to life in prison for killing a man in a fight at a party. And I was wanted in Texas for armed robbery. And I was also wanted by the feds. So I, oh, the, the judge just deemed me a habitual criminal. He deemed me a multi-state offender. And he booked me. He, he made sure that I was going to do a long time in prison if, if I would ever get out. And so they sent me to prison in 1985. They, sent me to, they sentenced me to life in prison in Ohio. But he wanted me to go to all the other places first that I owed time to and do that. He wanted me to go there first. So they sent me to Texas first. I got to Texas. Uh, you know, I, I hit the ground running in the prison system. I didn't, I, did, I didn't go there to be reformed. I went there to, to continue in my criminal addictive thinking and behavior. So uh, there's, for those of you that don't know, there, there are drugs in prison. There's every, every crime that gets committed on the street just about gets committed in prison as well. So it's not hard to find guys that are like-minded, that were like-minded to me, and I, I banded with them, and I got into a lot of trouble. I spent a lot of time in solitary confinement. And uh, so, they, so Texas, when I finished my time up there, they shipped me to the feds. The feds came and picked me up. A couple of, everybody else was getting out of, out of prison that day that was getting out of prison. They take you to a place called The Walls in Huntsville, Texas. And it's like a giant, uh, the, the front building is like a giant courthouse with, with great big stairs that go, go up to it, you know, like at, like at a, any federal courthouse or anything. And everybody was getting out, all the guys that were getting out, they were getting out and they were going down the stairs and they were hugging their wives and hugging their mamas and dads and their children and just, just having a joyful a reunion with them after, after being released from prison. I walked out of that prison and I walked down those steps with a federal marshal on each side of me, a belly chain around my west waist that I was handcuffed to, and leg irons on my leg iron on my legs. And I was, I walked out of there that way because I was just going to another prison. I wasn't being released, so they took me to, to the federal prison system. They kept me there for a while and then they transferred me to Ohio, where my life sentence was. When I got to Ohio, I had a chip on my shoulder. I was, I was coming into the system to, uh, to continue doing the dirty deeds that I had been doing all along, all my life. And, uh, and I remember one of the guys told me, he said, man, Johnny, he said, we, saw, we watched you when you first walked in the chow hall. And, and he said, we looked at you and we said, wow, that one there is going to be hard to handle. You know, he's got a bad look on his face. 
And I was just telling my wife the other day, I said, I said, you know, I'm, I'm thankful that, that I don't, uh, carry that dog around on my face anymore, you know, because I, I don't want it to stay there. I don't want to, I don't want to look like that. I don't want to look mean and ugly and, and, uh, and, and unapproachable. I want, I want people to be able to approach me now. And, uh, so I, so I get to Ohio and I, I continue in my criminal behavior. I, I was in, I was in one of the, the largest, uh, most violent prison gangs in the United States prison system. That's where that you know, those little crews that we formed that I talked about in the neighborhoods, you know, that progresses to bigger crews, older guys, organized crime. And the next thing you know, uh, you're in prison and you're, you're in one of the biggest, most violent prison gangs in the United States prison system. And I quickly rose through the ranks of that gang by committing violent acts against the enemies of our gang and, and rival gangs. So I, uh, here I am. Here I am in Ohio. Uh, I had been incarcerated for a little over 10 years, and Ohio deemed me, the Ohio prison system deemed me as one of the worst of the worst in their system, uh, extremely violent and a threat to the staff and other inmates of the prison system. So they sent me to a prison in uh, Southern Ohio called the Southern Ohio Correctional Facility in Lucasville, Ohio, and they put me in, uh, in a triple maximum security solitary confinement cell. And I was going to end up staying there for about two years. So after the first year, I was 38 years old. And after the first year in there, I, uh, I felt like I was buried alive. I felt like I was in a concrete tomb, like in a mausoleum. And I, but I was alive, but I was buried. And I felt dead. I felt loneliness was just consuming me. And the madness of, you know, I wasn't the only guy back there. There was other, other men back there that were deemed the worst of the worst in the Ohio prison system. And uh, the madness that you hear being spewed out of their mouths, you know, the foulness, the, 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 the degrading, the, the, the psychotic things that you hear, uh, it, just, it just tries to drive you crazy. So I remember taking toilet paper and wetting it and packing it in my ears to try to block that out. And I didn't, I didn't pray much. You know, I didn't, uh, I looked at God like he was a bail bondsman or a genie in a bottle. The only time I talked to God is when I was in trouble and when I wanted him to get me out of the trouble. So I was just trying to use God. I was trying to make deals with him and I never kept my end of the deal, you know? So he, uh, so he wasn't a big part of my life. And um, when, I, when I took the longest, hardest, most honest look at my life at age 38, at that time in that solitary confinement cell, when I finally had that moment of clarity, you know, I realized that I was a sick dude, man. In fact, so sick that... I wanted to die. I didn't want to live anymore because I had destroyed every relationship in my life. Relationships with my family, relationships with girls, relationships with coworkers and bosses. And I, I had destroyed every, every educational opportunity. I had opportunities to 
go to school and, and to make something of myself, and I flushed them down the toilet. I, every career opportunity, like I say, I was, I was in the union, I was, I was a bricklayer, they were grooming me to, to, to move up in the, in the administration in the, as a business agent, I flushed that down the toilet. So all, all I had right at that moment was me, and I didn't like me. I felt like a big pile of human waste. I felt like I was just wasting good air and that there was no reason for me to live. Now, I didn't want to kill myself because I, in my mind, I believe that if you killed yourself, you ruined any chance at all of going to heaven. Okay. I was telling that to a buddy of mine, you know, years later. And he goes, he goes, Johnny, you're going to hell anyway. You know, you, you, you're, you were a murderer. You were a gang leader. You hurt people. You robbed people. You, you didn't do any good to anybody. You were going to hell, buddy. And I was like, well, I'm glad I didn't know that dinner. I might've killed myself, you know, but, uh, but I didn't, I didn't kill myself for that reason. And the other reason was because I was a gang leader and I had rival gang members that hated me and wanted to kill me. So I thought if I kill myself, then I'm like doing their job for them. I'm doing their, their dirty work for them. So I can't do that. And, uh, and so those are the two reasons why I didn't kill myself, but I still wanted to die. So you know, who do you go to? You got you to go to God for that. And uh, I says, hey, I said, listen, I said, I'm just wasting good air. I'm good for nothing. I've ruined everything and everybody I've ever touched. I said, get me out of here, man. Take me off the count. Give me a heart attack, a stroke, whatever you see fit. Just get me out of here because I don't want to live in this concrete box for the rest of my life. And needless to say, God didn't answer that prayer. Or I wouldn't be standing here with you folks this morning. In, in retrospect, and in, in, in years later, I thought to myself, what he probably did was look down at me and say, Johnny, son, I ain't got to kill you. You're already dead. What I need to do is breathe some life into you and some hope into you and some love and joy and peace and, and, and patience and gentleness and goodness and faith and meekness and temperance. I need to, be, you know, I need to breathe the spirit into you. you know, that's probably what he said. I didn't hear it then, though. So I got mad. You know, three days later, he hadn't killed me. I hadn't had a stroke or a heart attack or anything. So I was, I was salty, man. I was mad at God. And I said, you know what, man? I said, doggone it, man. He ain't even going to kill me. And, uh, and, and I got to live in this box for the rest of my life. And I had read all the books back there. I mean, there was, there's paperback books back there. And, and we, we, we sling them down the range to each other and fish them into our cells with, with little things that we make out of newspaper. And, and I had read all the books. There was no, no new books back there. But somebody had left a book in my cell up under my bunk. And, and so I said, ah, let me see what that is. So I, I got up under there and I, I scooted it out from underneath the bunk and I dusted it off. And it was green. It had a green cover on it. You know what it was? It was one of those green Gideon pew Bibles that, that they have in, in you know, churches and, and motels and, and things like that. At least they used to. And, uh, and so I take this. I'm like, ah, oh, doggone, man, it's a Bible. And uh, I said, oh, well, I ain't got nothing else to read. So I start leafing through it. And, and here's how narcissistic and self-absorbed and self-centered and selfish and just tore up I was mentally and, and psychologically. I, I, I'm leafing through this Bible, and I see a book by a guy named John. So I said, oh, this cat must know what he's talking about. He's got my name, you know, born 2,000 years before me. I had his name, but I flipped it around and says, oh, yeah, he got my name. He must know what he's talking about. Let me read this. 
So I get to John chapter 5, and I read about the pool of Bethesda. The significance of the pool of Bethesda was the angels came down every day and troubled the waters. And if you were the first one in, you got healed of whatever was wrong with you. Spiritual illness, mental illness, emotional illness, physical illness, whatever was wrong with you, whatever you were afflicted of, you got healed of as soon as you touched that water when it was troubled by the angels. So in my mind, I'm picturing a big jacuzzi. When the angels come down, they flip the jets on and it's... You know, and, and if you're the first one in, you get healed. Well, there was this guy that had been sick for 38 years. And he had been going to the pool of Bethesda for 38 years to be healed. But every time he went to get in that water, when the angels troubled it, somebody always beat him to the punch. Somebody always beat him in there. And so he never got healed. So one day, this really cool cat named Jesus comes strolling up on the set, Right. And, and Jesus, you know, I'm picturing, in, in my mind, and one of the good things about prison is in prison, uh, a lot of guys do a lot of reading. And when you read, as opposed to watch TV, you, you develop your creative mind, okay? You picture what you're reading in your mind. So I picture Jesus rolling up on the set like this. You know he had long hair, right? You know Jesus had long hair? Okay, he did. Anyway, he goes like this. He walks up and he goes. <laughs> and he throws his hair back and he looks down at dude and goes, yo, man, what's up with you? And, and dude goes, I've been sick for 38 years and I keep trying to get in the water when the angel's trouble, but somebody always beats me to the punch. And Jesus goes, do you want to be healed? Now, picture, now here's how my mind works. I'm going to a place for 38 years to get healed. And some dude just asked me if I want to be healed. You know, come on, man. I'm like, so I picture a dude looking up at Jesus and go, duh, what do you think, man? I just got through telling you I've been coming here for 38 years, man. So Jesus says, listen, if you want to be healed, be healed. And boom, dude was healed. Didn't have to touch no water, didn't have to do anything. So he jumps up and runs into the marketplace and tells everybody about Jesus healing him. But what stuck out to me was he had been sick for 38 years. How old do you think I was at this time? I was 38 years old. And I'm like, wait a second. I'm, I've been sick for 38 years. So I look up at the ceiling of my cell. That's where God was. You know, he was up in my ceiling. I says, hey, I said, I've been sick for 38 years. Sin sick, dope sick, alcohol sick, crime sick, gang sick. I'm a sick dude, man. I said, if you heal him, heal me. I said, I heard you don't play favorites. And, uh, and I believe with all of my heart, not 90%, not, I believe with all of my heart that my healing began that moment because that is a prayer. Whether you know it or not, whenever you talk to God, you're praying. You're communicating with God. I don't care if you're cussing God out. It's a prayer. And I'm not, I don't suggest that you do that. But, uh, but that's a prayer. So I, I says, heal me, man. Heal me. If you heal him, heal me. And I really, truly believe that God started my healing process then. We have a, we, my wife and I are very active in the rooms of recovery and Alcoholics Anonymous. And uh, she, uh, we, we both, one of the things that we tell people is that God will do for you what you can't do for yourself. If as long as you just stay sober and keep doing the next right thing, God will take care of the rest. 
And, uh, and, and so that's the story of my life. Because here I am in a solitary confinement cell, and God sent me the people and the resources that I needed for my healing, for my deliverance, for my healing, for my restoration, and for my recovery. So, so here I am in the cell. Every Tuesday, a priest came back there named Father David Young. A priest comes back there, and he, 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 he counsels guys. He talks to guys, you know, just chats. He brings books back there and stuff to read. So I used to just shoo him past myself. Keep on going, Father Dave. Don't stop here. But this particular day, man, after, you know, my, my experience with, with reading John chapter 5, I say, hey, Father Dave, come here, come here. So he comes to my bars. He comes to the bars of my cell, and he's talking to me, and he says, I tell him, you know, tell him what happened. I said, I said, I said, Father Dave, I want to surrender my, my life to the Lord Jesus Christ. I said, I really do. I want to change, man. I don't want to be that guy anymore that I've been all my life. You know, that disgusting pile of waste. I, I want to I do what's right. I said, but I don't know how because I've never done it. So he starts counseling me. He starts bringing me books back there and stuff like that, praying with me, just really encouraging me. And then I get out, you know, a year later, I get out of, of, of SEG and I, I go to population and I start, going to, I start going to church and I start going to Bible study and I, and I get involved in recovery. I, and this, this was a scam. I signed up for this program so that I could move from the close security side of the prison. I got transferred from Lucasville, which is maximum security. I got transferred to another prison, which was close security and medium security. I was on the close side. On the medium side, they had a program called the New Life Therapeutic Community. Okay, it was a, it was a drug and alcohol. It was an intensive inpatient treatment center that was they they took a whole cell block and turned it into a treatment center, inpatient treatment center. So it was on the medium side where all the where they had more privileges than us. So I told my buddy, I said, "Hey, Danny boy, let's sign up for this, and we'll get to go to the medium side." Yeah. Well, little did we know what we were signing up for. When we got there, now Danny and I are, are, are hardened convicts. We, uh, we don't go by the rules. We are, you know, we're, we're, we're not good guys. We're not model prisoners. So we go to this program and it's all rules and all regulations from 7.30 in the morning till 8.30 at night, five days a week. They give you the weekends off just to recover from all the programming you've been going through every day. So we get in there. We don't think we're going to make it uh, because of all the rules and everything and, and our, our rebellious attitudes. And again, God doing for us what we can't do for ourselves. There was a guy named Billy in there. He's an African-American brother. And Billy was, we called him Joe Recovery because he was at all the AA meetings, all the NA meetings. He was in everything, everything good. So I, I said, hey, Billy, come here. I said, me and Danny Boy ain't going to make it here. He goes, well, yes, you will. I said, no, we won't. He goes, yes, you will, because I'm going to start coming to your cell at 7 o'clock every morning because programming starts at 7.30, and we're going to hit our knees, and we're going to pray. And Billy DeWood, he, he stayed true to his word. He came every morning, and here was my prayer every morning. Dear Lord, please help us not to get kicked out today. Amen. Billy would pray these long, beautiful, eloquent, spirit-filled prayers. You know, Lord, open the open your word to Johnny and Danny's heart and open your open their hearts to your word and just move mightily in their lives and cause them to see that you have a better life for them. And, you know, just really great prayers. And I'm so glad he did. 
because we did, we started to, we started to change. We started to work the work, you know, uh, faith without works is dead. So we started doing what they told us to do, even though we weren't like these guys, you know, we started doing what they, my counselor told me, he says, you better become like them. He says, or you're going to die in your disease. And I was like, wow. He said, just act as if. He says, just do what you do. When you, when you were learning to be a gangster, he said, you copied what the gangsters were doing, Johnny. He says, so now copy what these guys are doing. And, and I, years later, I was mentoring a guy in, 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 in the Christian faith, and his name was Eric, and his buddies were teasing him. His buddies were saying, ah, you want to be just like Irish Johnny, man. You want to be just like Irish Johnny. You're, you're just a copycat. And Eric said, it's okay to be a copycat as long as you're copying the right cat. And, uh, and, he's, and, I, and I, I, I said, well, I like that, Eric. I'm going to use that. So, so that's what I did. I copied the right cats, and pretty soon I became like them. And God did, a, did an awesome work in my life. He taught me how to, uh, instead of getting high and, and getting drunk, to change my moods and feelings. He taught me how to change my moods and feelings without the use of substances and without doing something criminal. And, and you, there, there's, there's, if you write them down, there's all kinds of cool things you can do to change your moods and feelings. Listen to music, read your Bible, pray, uh, play, play a sport, uh, uh, you know, watch something positive on TV, uh, read a book, uh, write a letter. There's so many things you can do to change your moods and feelings without the use of drugs and alcohol, without the, the, the doing anything criminal. And I, when I began practicing that, I began to change. And, and, and I started to look inside of me. He said, Johnny, you know why you're so violent? He said, you know why you hurt people? And I said, yeah, I hurt people because they deserve to be hurt. He goes, no. No, that's not it. He said, you hurt people because you are hurt people. And you think the only relief you're going to get is if you, you walk away from somebody that you beat down and they're laying on the ground bleeding and you say, well, at least I ain't hurting as bad as they're hurting. But then the guilt and the shame and the self-condemnation sets in and you realize that all the people around you, they don't really like you. They're scared of you, man, because you're so violent. They don't know what you're going to do. You know, so, so now I'm taking a, a real hard look at my insides, man. I'm looking at, hard, at growing up the way I grew up. You know, my father was, a, was a, an alcoholic and a prescription drug abuser. You know, and he was very violent. He was very abusive, physically abusive towards my mama. And I, and I grew up witnessing that. I grew up in a violent atmosphere. And violence became my answer to everything. You know, if somebody wasn't the way I wanted to be, if I was a, if I was violent enough, I could either get them to change or get them out of the way so I didn't have to deal with them anymore. And that's not the way to live. That's not the way God wants us to live. Years later, God taught me that the greatest weapon I need to have in my arsenal is love. He said, here's how he did it. He said, Johnny, he says, I'm God, right? I said, yeah, yeah, Lord, you're God. He says, there's nothing stronger than me. There's nothing bigger than me. There's there's no one that can even compare to me, right? And I said, yeah, right. He said, and I'm love, right? I said, yeah, Lord, your word says God is, you are love. He says, well, that means there's nothing, nothing stronger than love. And I'm like, okay. He goes, so that means that love is the, is the main weapon you need to have in your arsenal. You know, I tried to identify, I tried to find my identity in drugs and alcohol and sex and crime and, 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 and gangs. I look for my identity in every, you know, it's like the old song, looking for love in all the wrong places. I wasn't looking for my identity in all the wrong places. You know where I found my identity? I found my identity right here. When I studied my God, when I studied my father, when I learned 
who he was and what he was about. Then I learned who I was and what I was about. You know, in Romans 8, 28, it says all things work together for good for those who love God and for those who are called according to his purpose. In the very next verse, it tells us what our purpose is. You know, I, I never knew what my purpose was. I don't think any of us do, do really, you know, right off the bat. You know, so I didn't know what my purpose was until a, a pastor showed it to me. He said, Johnny, your purpose is in the very next verse. In, in Romans 8, 29, it says, for those he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, Jesus Christ, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Now, you guys that have older brothers and sisters, when you went through school and, and the teacher goes, oh, you're just like your sister, Debbie. Or, you know, oh, you're just like your brother, Joe. You know, you know, we're supposed to look like our older brothers and sisters. We're supposed to look like Jesus. We're supposed to let God mold us and shape us. That's what conform means, to be molded and shaped into. Okay, so how does he do that? I'll tell you exactly how he does it. He does it with the situations and circumstances in your life and in my life. We all have different situations and circumstances, but God uses those situations and circumstances to mold us and shape us into the image of our Lord Jesus Christ as long as we are being obedient to his word. Now, how much time I got? Okay, I think I got, I'm, I'm, I'm looking at about eight to 13 more minutes. Okay, so I got, I, guess I got to try to jam as much in as I can, because this is, this is, this is powerful, man. We are nothing, we have nothing, and we can do nothing without him. He is our absolute everything, our all in all, our one and only, true, ever-living, ever-loving God and Father, who is rich in mercy and full of loving kindness, man. I mean, if, we ain't, if you ain't living for, for God, you ain't living, man. You just ain't living, and I know this in my heart now, and I want everybody to know it. I want everybody to experience it. So we, we let God mold us and shape us. In, in Romans, in Romans 6.16, it says, we belong to whoever we obey. Think about that. You know, in prison, I'm going I'm to I'm go gutter on you guys for a minute. In prison, if you belong to another man, you're his punk, okay? That is not a cool place to be. That's not a cool position to have in the joint. Well, guess what? If we belong to the devil, we're his punks. We're his punks. We're obeying him instead of obeying God, who has blessings and, and, and life and blessings, okay? That's what God has for us. Life. Jesus said, the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy, but I come that you might have life and have it more abundantly. You study that more abundantly out in the Greek, what it was written in, and you'll find out that God will bless you with so much that you have to share it. You won't be able to contain it all, you know? And in, in Malachi chapter 3, you know, it says, Will a man rob God? How are we going to rob you? In your tithes. If you don't tithe, if you tithe, if you don't tithe, you're robbing God. If you do tithe, God will open up the windows and gates of heaven and pour blessings down upon you such as you can't contain. Okay, it, it, I'm telling you stuff that I know that I know works because it's worked in my life. It's worked in my wife's life. I, I haven't even been out of prison five years yet. I bought my, we bought our first home two, two years ago. I never owned a home. I lived in, in apartments and and stuff all my life, in, in jail cells. Okay, here's another thing. Is, is it possible, you think it's possible to break the law? Does anybody in this room think it's possible to break the law? Because if you do, you're wrong. You're wrong. The law doesn't break. We only break ourselves against the law. The law is established. It is firm. 
we break ourselves against the law. And let me tell you something about how, how good God is. He puts boundaries around us. He has commandments. He has statutes. He has laws. He has rules and regulations in this book right here. They're not there to dog us. They're not there to restrict us and, and, and lord over us like some, some mean old king. You know, what those, you know what those boundaries are in place for? You know what those rules and laws and commandments are in place for? They're in place to preserve and protect our freedom. Wow, when I learned that in prison, that was a good one. I was like, whoa. So all my life, I'm thinking I could get away with something. You can't get away with anything. The Bible says in, in Galatians, God is not mocked. Whatsoever a man soweth. He said, at first it says, be not deceived. In other words, <laughs> don't kid yourself. Don't lie to yourself. God is not mocked. Whatsoever a man or woman soweth, that shall he or she also reap. Anything you do is coming back around, man. We always say, what, what comes around goes around. Or what goes around comes around. It's always coming back on you, whatever you set into motion. And that's why I just love this word. Because this word is, is a guide on how to live. So I do the last 20 years of my prison bit, walking with the Lord. Uh, the, the prison staff that used to that used to want to lock me up and never want to let, let me out, they started asking me to teach classes. They started asking me to disciple guys, to mentor guys, to sponsor guys in their recovery. I started working with other men, and I, I, found, I found one of the greatest revelations in my life. There is no more fulfilling sense of being that we will ever experience than to be used by a tool in the master's hand. To help him mold and shape another person into who he created them to be originally. Originally. Okay. So I, I finally get out of prison. I'm getting out of prison. The devil's in my ear. Oh, you're 60 years old. You've been locked up since you were 28. I did 32 years, four months, and 27 days in the penitentiary straight. No breaks. Okay, so I'm getting out at 60. Been locked up since I was 28. I'm an old, older man now. Okay, devil's, nobody's going to want to hire you. No woman's going to want to be with you. You're, you're, it's hit, you're hit. Blah, blah. And it was rough. It was rough when I first got out. I, I ain't going to lie. It was the twilight zone. I stepped into the twilight zone. I went to Menards. I went, I went to use the restroom. And I, and I, I used one of the urinals. And I went to flush it. And there's nothing to flush it with. So I, I'm looking down. I'm like, well, I'm, I practice good hygiene. You know, I, even in penitentiary, I will not leave a urinal without flushing. So I'm, I'm in a dilemma. So I look two urinals over for me, and there's some guy taking care of his business. And I says, hey, buddy, I says, uh, how do you flush these toilets? He goes, step away from it. I said, I'm not going to step away from it because I just urinated in it, and I need, I need to flush it. He goes, step away from it, and it'll flush itself. I step away. I was like, wow, that's cool. And the guy's looking at me like I got three heads. You know? he, he, he's like, you know, whoa, where's this cat from? So then I turn around, I go to the sink, and I go to wash my hands, and there's no nozzles. There's nothing to turn the water on with. And I go, hey, he goes, put your hands under the... 
put your hands under the faucet and it'll come out. And I said, okay, thanks, man. And I did, and it worked. But then I went to the, then I, I, I eventually got a, a bank account. I got a, cre- a little credit card. I got a little car so that I could drive back and forth to work in. I got my license. And I went to the gas station and I couldn't pump gas. I couldn't, I couldn't figure it out. You know, I had the car and I'm, I'm, I'm trying, I'm pushing buttons and I'm doing all this stuff and nothing's happening. So I go inside and I asked the young man working behind the counter, I said, would you please come out and help me do this pump? He said, sure, mister. He came out, nice, very nice young man. I said, show me about three times how to do it so that I know how to do it. And then he shows me and then I do it and, I, and it works. And I know, now I know how to do it. And I, I sit in my car and I go to drive away. And post-traumatic stress disorder sets in, man. And I'm like, man, I'm 60 years old. And I don't know how to do nothing no more. I've been in prison so long that everything's changed out here. And I can't do it. And I gather myself like I'm doing right now. And uh, I drive away. And I go, to, I go to church that Sunday, and our priest, our priest is preaching out of the gospel where Jesus says, unless you become like little children, you shall not inherit the kingdom of God. <laughs> and I, I, I looked up at the ceiling of the church, and I went, yes, that's me. I'm that little child. So God comforted my heart through all of that. He's like, it's okay to... To have to learn everything all over again, Johnny. It's okay, man. And and God has been teaching me the ropes, so to speak, ever since I've been out. And He's put beautiful, wonderful people in my wife, in my life. My wife is is sitting right there. Uh, she's got 35 years clean and sober. I've got 25 years. Yeah, I um, uh, I'm gonna end with this. Uh, I, um, actually, I might have a couple more minutes. Where's, where's, uh, where's my timer at? Tell me, holler out how much time I have left. Uh, <laughs> I don't want to, I don't want to. Yeah, don't tell me that. Don't tell me that. Anyway, so, so I'm, I'm a month from getting out of prison, right? And, uh, and there's a guy that's bringing AA meetings into the prison system, and his name is Kent. Parks, very nice, very nice man. And uh, he said, Johnny, you're getting out pretty soon, ain't you? And I said, yes, sir. I said, I'm getting out in 30 days. He goes, yeah, where are you going? I said, I'm going to Delaware, Ohio. And uh, here's, a, here's a great story of God doing for me what I couldn't do for myself. I said, I'm going to Delaware, Ohio, Kent. He goes, oh, you're from Delaware? <laughs> I said, no, I ain't never been to Delaware in my life except on a prison bus driving through it. And uh, I says, but uh, a Christian family, a Christian man and his wife, uh, that have been visiting me in prison for, for 14 years, uh, they, they have opened their home up to me, and the parole board is letting me go live with them when I first get out uh, until I get on my feet and, and can get my own place and stuff. And he goes, wow, that's fantastic. He goes, there's a girl named Dee up in Ohio, up in uh, Delaware, he says, who's really active. He said she's got about 30 years sober, and she's real active in the rooms of recovery, and she knows all the winners. She sticks with the winners. She knows all the good meetings and all the good people. He goes, look her up when you get out. I said, okay, I will. So 
it goes in one ear and out the other. Because I'm not thinking about D. I'm not thinking about Sierra. I'm not thinking about Lisa. I'm not thinking about no girls. I'm thinking about getting out, getting a lunchbox, getting a job, and going to work and getting my life back together. And so I'm at an AA meeting a couple months, months after I got out on a Saturday night. And here comes this gal in the room, just like one of the old timers, like the old timers do. And she's walking around the room and she's shaking everybody's hand and introducing herself to them or saying hi to them if she already knows them. And she gets to me and she says, hi, I'm Dee. And I said, uh, I, I'm Johnny. I said, I've heard about you, Dee. And she goes, oh, yeah, what'd you hear about me? I said, well, I heard about you when I was in prison. And her eyes got real big. She's like, what'd you hear about me in prison? I'm picturing what's going through her mind for a good time called D. And uh, I said, don't worry. It was all good. I said, I heard you've been sober for 30 years and you're, you're like the go-to person in recovery up here. And she goes, oh, yeah, well, yeah, that's, that's true. Yeah. So I said, well, it's good to meet you. So, you know, in AA, a, a, a handshake for the first few meetings. And then after you get to know somebody a little bit, you give them a little hug. And so I gave, her, I gave her the little AA hug one, one night. And man, did that girl smell good. <laughs> now, bear in mind, I'm no connoisseur of women's fragrances by any sense of the word, because I, I didn't smell any when I was in prison for 30 plus years. But th- she smelled so good that I had to, when, I, when, I, when, we, when we came out of the embrace, I said, I'm not trying to be funny or anything. I said, but you smell really good. I go, what is that you're wearing? And she says, oh, it's, you know, it's called Sung, and it's my favorite perfume. And I was like, it's my favorite now, too, you know. <laughs> so she goes to her seat, and I go to mine. But, I'm, you know, I'm, 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 I still, you know, know how to maneuver a little bit. So, so, I, so I sit where the, the air vents are blowing. She's sitting over here, and the air vent's blowing this way. So I sit downwind from her. So I, you know, and I, but I pay attention in the meeting and everything. But the whole time, I'm, I'm sitting there going, man, that girl smells good. And so uh, we saw each other at an AA picnic, you know, maybe a month later or something. And uh, I worked up enough nerve to talk to her. And, uh, you know, this is how you find out if a gal's married or not, if she's in the rooms of recovery. So I walked up to her and I says, hey, I says, uh, how you doing? She's like, good, good. I says, hey, is your husband involved in, that, in, in recovery as well? And she goes, no, I'm not married. I'm divorced. And I said, oh, I'm sorry to hear that. And she said, well, I'm not. And I said, okay, enough said about that. And, uh, and I said, would you like to get a plate of food and, and, you know, sit down and talk and stuff? And she said, yeah. So we did. And I, I said, have you been divorced long enough to where you feel, you know, you, you can maybe go have a cup of coffee with somebody or go to a meeting or, you know, we could talk. And she said, yeah, I think that would be appropriate. And so I gave her my, my digits, as these young folks say. And she gave me hers, and we, we started texting. And, and as they say, uh, the rest is history. We got married in the courthouse during COVID. And then, we, I mean, we, we dated for a year. Then we were engaged for a year. And then we got married during COVID in the courthouse. And uh, last May 21st, we got married in our church in Marion, Ohio, St. Mary's of Marion, Ohio. We got married and had all of our friends there and family, and it was a a really, really wonderful um, experience of the the blessing, the gift of holy matrimony. And she's, 
you know, I had, a, I, had a, I had designed a blueprint for God when I was in prison. I said, okay, Lord, here's what I want. Here's what I want my girl to look like. Here's what I want her hair to look like. Here's what I want her face to look like. Here's how I want her to be shaped. Here's how I want her personality to be, you know, a sense of humor. So I made this blueprint for God. Okay, this is what I want, Lord. You know, you know your, your word says, delight ourselves in you and you'll give us the desires of our heart. So I'm, I'm going for that. I'm, I'm standing on your promises. And, uh, and man, when I met D, when I, her name's Suzanne D. When I met D, I took that blueprint that I had and I crumbled it up in a ball. And I pitched it in the garbage can and I looked up to heaven and I said, your blueprint is way better than mine. <laughs> and I tell her all the time, she, she's, not, she's far from perfect. We all are. But man, she's perfect for me. And, uh, and God, God knew it all along. And, and so, you know, I went back to work. I went back to work in the union. Um, my boss, after working for a month, my boss said, Johnny, I want 20 more just like you. And I said, well, I know where to get them. We just got to go get them out. <laughs> yeah. And I, uh, my union, my, my local uh, elected me as the uh, recording secretary of our executive board two years after I was in the union. And then uh, my company has, I've worked for the same company for almost five years now. And they, they have been very good to me. Uh, like I said, we bought a home, man. We, we ride Harleys. We, we're living life, man. We are living life. And, and, but there's nothing more rewarding, nothing more rewarding than doing what I'm doing right now, talking to people about Jesus and what he'll do in their lives. If he can take a wretch like me, if he can take an old, no good gangster, criminal gang member like me. And, and you know, I, in, in 1 Peter 5, 7, it says that the devil's like a roaring lion see, roaming throughout the world, seeking whom he may devour. Well, let me tell you something. When I was in that solitary confinement cell at 38 years old, he had devoured me. He had chewed me up into small little shreds and he had swallowed me, and he had, he, and, and I was passing through his system, and I was in his bowels. I was in the bowels of the beast, and Jesus reached, ripped his mouth open and reached down in there and grabbed hold of me and pulled me out of that muck and that mire. He washed me in his blood. I was buried in the waters of baptism and risen again to new life. I was filled with the Holy Spirit. I'm continuously being filled with the word. And, and let me tell you something. In, in Revelation 12, 11, it says that we defeat that old dragon, that old stinking devil, man. We defeat him by the blood of the lamb, the word of our testimony, and not loving our lives even unto death. I, today, today every, every one of you today died to yourself so that you could come and worship him. Whatever else you wanted to do, maybe, whatever else you wanted to do, you set that aside, you made that sacrifice, and, and you came to worship the Lord and to be here today. So we, let me tell you something, we're all dragon slayers this morning. Thank you for listening to Crosslink Community Church Podcast. If you would like more information about our church, please visit our website at www.crosslinkchurch.com or join us in person on Sunday mornings at 1020 a.m. Don't forget to subscribe to our podcast so you don't miss a single message and share with a friend. Thank you again for listening.